Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 Podcast Kit, visit Shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit TheOldMillPress.com. And by listeners like you. Hi, this is Amanda Raymond, writer, director, producer, and you're listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome yet again to another edition of Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and pop culture, where every week we take you behind the scenes for some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, as well as what's going on in the world of entertainment. I am Al John Go, longtime Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars fan. And you can email me, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Uh, Al John, uh, I can't even believe this is like the end of January already. Where did the <laughs> month go? It just shot by. It certainly did. You know, everybody's busy doing their thing and life continues. I had my my wife, you know, we go back to uh, this past Tuesday where we took like our kids. We finally got the kids adopted fully legally names changed everything. But she, uh, initially she signed all of our documents, 22, like 2022. I'm like, Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> you gotta, we gotta print this back out again. Cause you're, you're reciting it wrong. She's like, Oh shoot. You know, it's like, uh, you know, I've been firmly entrenched in uh, 2023 and it just has gone by so quickly. Yeah, you know, I I typically the first week or two am writing 2022 on things, but uh, this year I really made a conscious effort to do 2023. Awesome! But I have to tell you, uh, you know, I'm I I saw a number of comments from people who are enjoying our show on social media. Yeah, uh, and uh, I got a note from a friend. Uh, making a suggestion for some future guests. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to follow up on that. I'm, I'm very excited about that. Yeah. And, you know, which, which makes me want to say to our listeners, if there's a particular topic you want us to cover, let us know. Yes. Uh, we're going to do our best to uh, satisfy that uh, request. Yeah, uh, so, so keep those comments coming to us. Absolutely. You know, uh, we received an email from our friend Matt Mason, you know, the poet laureate of uh, Nebraska, yeah. right? And uh, it's got that book out uh, at the corner of Main Street and Disneyland, the midlife and churros, you know, a book. And I feel like at, uh, at the at, at the title is at the corner of fantasy and Maine. Yeah. Midlife, Disneyland and churros. That's it. That's it. 
You got it, Dave. And so uh, he he just says how much he enjoys the show and thanks for having him on last year. But uh, yeah, definitely plug that book. And uh, I think it's a great book. And Matt is a great human being. So uh, give a big shout out to Matt and Happy New Year to you, buddy, and all that good stuff. Yeah, he's really terrific. I, you know, I did a book signing with him back in October. Uh, he flew in from Nebraska to do the uh, Disney Anna show wow. uh, down in Anaheim. And uh, he and I sat together along with Don Ballard. Uh, Don Ballard was there as well. And uh, we were all signing books. That's amazing. That's great. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. He's yeah, a great guy. Absolutely. And I, I'm with you 100% about those comments. You know, we love the comments. You can comment actually. On the Spotify version of this show, you can leave your comments and um, uh, actually send us those emails. I think there's at, at the end of the podcast show notes, there's a place where you can always send us the uh, you know comments on the show and all kinds of suggestions. So and please yeah, make suggestions to us, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So ha- yeah, go ahead. And I was going to say, we have a great show today. We've got animator Dan Jupe. Uh, in the house, he's uh, he's down the hall in the green room. Yeah, wrecking it probably. I don't yeah. know. We'll see. <laughs> no, I mean you know the good news about Dan is is that you know he's so used to the red carpet treatment with all the Disney movies he's worked on. Uh, so Dan, enjoy enjoy the Pringles and and the grapes we have. Just been, they've been sitting out. <laughs> um, you know, the last time we you know we had the Pringles open was just last week. So you know they're not too stale. So hope you enjoy them. There you go. <laughs> All righty then. So uh, what have you been watching uh, over the course of the week, Dave? You know, I didn't watch a, a tremendous amount of stuff this past week just because I'm I'm so busy with a lot of other projects. But I did have a chance to go to the movies and see Women Talking, Ooh. which has uh, Frances uh, McDormand in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was an interesting movie. Uh, you know, uh, I, I have to say, um, I would, uh, uh, say that this is the kind of movie that you could absolutely, uh, watch, uh, on television. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, I, you can watch it at home if you have a good home entertainment system. I don't think you need to actually see this, uh, this film in, uh, a theater, uh, but you can if you want to. Um, the synopsis is uh, the women of an isolated religious colony reveal a shocking secret about the colony's men. For years, the men have occasionally drugged the women and then raped them. The uh, truth comes out and the women talk about their uh, new their new situation. Uh, and a lot of this uh, movie takes place in a hayloft of a barn. Uh, and, uh, you've got Claire Foy, uh, Jesse Buckley, Rooney Mara, uh, Francis McDormand, Ben, uh, uh, is it Wishore? Hmm. Wishore, I think it is. Michelle McLeod. Uh, it's a great cast. I mean, great performances, um, and a disturbing topic. Well, there you go. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, I saw that, uh, and, uh, I was watching, uh, on Netflix, uh, a series called The Shooter uh, with uh, Ryan Felipe, I think is how you yes, pronounce yes. his name. Yes. Uh, and um, he, uh, you know, he plays a, a former Marine sniper and he's framed for uh, an assassination of a foreign president. Uh, it, you know, it's got a great cast. Omar Epps. I haven't seen him in a while. He's a terrific actor. 
uh, Eddie McClintock. Uh, who else is in it? Uh, Cynthia uh, Ade Robinson. Okay. And Chantel uh, Van Santen. Um, so this is uh, on Netflix. It's called The Shooter. There's a couple of seasons of it. Mm. Um, the first season I thought was was, was really terrific, and it was uh, a lot of fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, I was sending uh, Jeremy Renner a little love by watching The Mayor of Kingstown. Hey, there you go. And uh, I have to say, um, you know, the the Mayor of Kingstown is uh a very good show yeah um i i mean it's uh you know essentially it's a it's a crime drama about an important contemporary issue american prison systems mayor of kingstown follows the mccluskey family in kingstown michigan where the business of incarceration is the only thriving industry the family of power brokers between police criminals inmates prison guards and politicians tackles themes of systemic racism, corruption, and inequality. The crime thriller series provides a stark look at their attempt to bring order and justice to a town that has neither. And uh, like I said, it's got uh, uh, Jeremy Renner as the star, uh, Emma Lard, uh, Kyle Chandler, uh, really only survives the first episode, uh, Nicole uh, Glacia. Uh, Hugh Dillon, uh, is also, I believe, uh, a co-creator along with Taylor Sheridan and, mm-hmm. you know, Taylor Sheridan from, uh, 1923 and Yellowstone. And I think he's also the creator of, uh, King, uh, the Tulsa King. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, he's got a ton of, ton of shows, uh, but I got to tell you really well done, very gritty. You know, it is a crime drama. There's uh violence, there's uh you know, uh, corruption, uh, payola, all that kind of stuff going on. Okay. Uh, and, and I have to tell you, as I was watching this, it's not unlike how I was growing up in New York, you know, where there's a, a, a lot of things that go on under the surface, you know, interesting. You know, people, uh, you know, uh, it, you know, the old saying is, I know a guy, you know, uh, this is this is like the, sort of the underlying, like, I know a guy that can take care of that. Or I know a guy, you know, who can get me that TV that fell off a truck, you know, right. that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I use that term all the time. It's like, I know a guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I really need that guitar, Al John. I know yeah. a guy. <laughs> <laughs> But I have to tell you, uh, Mayor of Kingstown uh, is uh, on uh, Paramount Plus. Yeah, uh, you can watch it on Paramount Plus, and I think you can also get it on Amazon Prime uh, yep. if you have Amazon Prime. Yep. Not sure if you have to pay for it on Amazon Prime, but at least on Paramount Plus, it's part of the subscription. Yeah, it's good stuff. You know, so the, that's really what I watched this week. Not a lot of stuff, but some some quality stuff. Very good. What about you, Al John? Well, this week we we delve into more of the documentary series uh, for us, <laughs> and uh, it came out uh, over the course of the past couple of weeks. The hatchet wielding hatchet killer, and it's a shocking documentary that chronicles a happy go lucky nomad's ascent to viral stardom and the steep downward spiral that resulted in his imprisonment. And uh, Dave, this the guy, hatchet wielding hitchhiker. Yeah, so. <laughs> it, a long story short, this guy 
apparently was on the West Coast and was walking around and then uh, was made a hero by the the local press because, I mean, and he is just a whacked out kind of like, think about Carrot Top, but homeless and whacked out. That's what this guy looks like. And he just, he apparently had saved someone from, um, from getting, I guess from getting attacked and he took the back of a hatchet and hit him over the head and come to find out he actually hit him over the head several times, but he was uh, lauded by the press as a hero. And then you come to find out that his backstory is really, really tragic. This guy is, you know, going back and forth, just living off people's generosity, a nomadic kind of person, you know, you, you don't want to use the term hobo, but I mean, that's kind of what he is, right? You know, who yeah, uses the term yeah. hobo these days, except for me. And then he finds himself, I guess, on the generosity of somebody uh, on the East Coast and, you know, basically paints him out to be some kind of bad guy and murders him, quote unquote, on self-defense. Come to find out it wasn't self-defense that he took advantage of this seven-year-old man and killed him. Wow. And then all of a sudden a manhunt happens, but that's after like three weeks of him going viral um, because of this local newscast and he gets to go on Jimmy Kimmel and all these talk shows and everything. And so they're whining and dining him, flying to places. He's known as a viral celebrity back in 2013 and then come to find out there's a lot more under the surface. I think it's just an interesting story of how we take people out of context and, you know, make them heroes or villains based on something you know, just just out of context, and we're quick to judge, and we're quick to do this, and then you realize this person is not who this person really is, and then you realize that this person is really shady, and and come to find out, he is he is a murderer. You know, wow. And he, he he actually wow. stayed at people's homes, and everybody's shocked, going, "I let this people in my this person in my house into my place of work, and you know, I I took care of this person, and he could have turned around and killed me." You know, wow, that is craziness. It is so. If you're into those kind of weird documentaries and news stories, definitely check that out because it's just you know you, you talk about the unlikely hero. Uh, he is unlikely hero, but uh, you know he is you know not what you think he is. You know, so it almost sounds like a Dateline episode. It it really does. It's like a 20, 2020 Dateline, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Kind of explain it. It's only like an hour and a half, so it's an easy watch. So. Don't watch alone. <laughs> Don't watch alone. Hey, speaking of something you need to watch, um, you I saw this this past week, and you saw it too uh, on YouTube. You want to talk about it a little bit because it's hilarious. Oh, this is the, um, uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I can't help but laugh uh, about this. It is um, – a YouTube video. It's about eight minutes long. We're going to put the link in the show notes. <laughs> Might as well. The, uh, <laughs> the, the title of this is Mickey fires Bob Chapek. And it, it, it's a, a seven, eight minute uh, YouTube movie uh, with Mickey firing Bob Chapek. And it's sort of a out in the desert, like uh, it's set it up as, like as sort of like a, a mob kind of uh, uh, situation where where uh, they have an actor portraying Bob Iger who's driving Chapek out into the desert, you know, oh, and, and it's, uh, it, it's hysterical. First it really of all, is. first of all, they nailed the look of Bob Chapek and Bob Iger because Bob Iger is wearing that suit that he's known for. Yeah. The, and then the, he's, the, uh, yeah. And he's wearing driving gloves. 
<laughs> yeah, and and, and Chapek has that blue sh- blue uh, the the uh, blue suit on and uh, the and the bald head with the beard. I know. I'm gonna play a little audio. I think this is safe enough for work for for now. Hold what on. are we doing here? Where's the lake, Bob? I think we both know there's no lake, Bob. Bob, come on, please. Clean yourself up, Bob. The boss wants a word with you. And he opens up a laptop. Bobby, Bobby, Bobby. <laughs> I think we're, I think we're gonna have to stop it there I'm because stop Mi- it there. Mi- Mickey Mickey's dropping some f bombs. Yeah, yeah, we know. Uh, yeah, and, and it is hysterical, and, and and it's an animated Mickey. I mean, they really uh, put something into this. You know, I they, have to say they did. And you know what's hilarious is that you could clearly he is clearly uh, from talking from some kind of. Uh, uh, some kind of tower, probably the Disneyland Hotel, because it overlooks uh, the the you know Disneyland, <laughs> which is yeah, hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's hysterical. Uh, if you if you don't mind a little foul language coming from a cartoon character, which by the way is always funny, yeah, uh, always funny. <laughs> I would say uh, check it out. The link is going to be in the show no- notes. Uh, Mickey fires Bob Chapek. It is hilarious. Uh, it's on YouTube. It's definitely something that uh, made its way around the Disney community, and we all just gave it a good laugh. It was just funny. Um, But, yeah, and you're like, uh, you know, how do people find time to do this? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think it's justified with the number of hits uh, this this group has. The Warp Zone is the the, uh, creators behind it. They've got 2.2 or almost 3 million subscribers, Dave. Mm. And uh, this is 188,000 hits uh, over the past couple months. And uh, I think they're going to be doing okay for themselves, I think. Yeah, no, that's pretty great. Yeah, absolutely. Skull Rock Podcast. Ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Dave did his duty, if you will, this past week as he voted uh, for his category. For the Oscars, yes, the Oscar nominees have been released. We've got the huge list, Dave, and uh, your categories of animation, short film, and and long form live, uh, long form animated films. I mean, it's pretty stacked. Yeah, no, I, I you know, I have to say this is this is kind of an interesting year because you've got a lot more blockbuster movies in the best picture category. And uh, I have to tell you, uh, and, and I'm just going to rattle them off. All Quiet on the Western Front uh, for Best Motion Picture of the Year. Avatar, The Way of the Water. Banshees of Inishir, Elvis. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. The Fablemans. Tar. Top Gun Maverick. Triangle of Sadness. And Women Talking, which I we just talked about and I just saw. But uh, I, I'm... I, honestly, I have to say that uh, women talking would not have been in my top 10 uh, and wasn't, by the way. Uh, but interesting that there's uh, Top Gun Maverick mm-hmm. uh, and Avatar Way of the Water. You know, those are huge blockbuster movies. Yeah. Uh, and I think really this is an attempt to try and get... Uh, uh, you know, an audience back because in recent years, there's been a lot of movies that are very small art house movies that the general public, most, most of the general public doesn't go see, right. you know, and, and they had, you know, 
And, you know, the Academy's wondering why their their uh, viewership is dropping precipitously. It's because they're nominating movies that nobody watches. So there's the, the none of the viewers have the skin in the game to say, you know, to be, sit there and root for their team. You know what right. I mean? That's root right. for the movie that they saw. Um, but under best animated feature film of the year, you've got Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. You got Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Uh, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, The Sea Beast, and Turning Red. Uh, so those are the five uh, animated features that are nominated. And then for uh, the um, uh, animated short uh, film category, you've got The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and The Horse. Uh, which you can watch, I believe, I think I said, you can watch this on Apple Plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Flying Sailor, Ice Merchants, My Year of Dicks, which I swear, uh, Al John, it, it's a hysterical film. It's very well done, and it's a, a terrific concept. Uh, but I honestly feel like uh, a lot of people voted for this because they want the presenters to say, my year of dicks sure uh, hey, uh, on, on, on a worldwide broadcast <laughs> you, you know uh, they, they are your contemporaries dave the people that voted the category that wanted someone to say that on tv yeah and then uh the finally an ostrich told me the world is fake and i think i believe it mm-hmm. uh which is a, a funny australian stop motion film nice. uh but those are those are the five best animated shorts uh and um i i think you know, there, there's a really good selection of films that have been uh, nominated uh, and also all the uh, other categories, uh, you know, film editing and documentary, uh, directing, all of those uh, different costume design. You know, they're really terrific. Um, there's there's a really good mix of, of films in here. And I would say on the best picture front, if people haven't had a chance to see it, see everything everywhere all at once. It's a terrific film. The Fablemans I really enjoyed from Steven Spielberg. Um, uh, the Banshees of Inishir is a beautifully shot movie and and really kind of a dark comedy to me. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. So uh, there's a bunch of great movies in there and you have plenty of time to see it before uh, the Academy Awards hit. Oh, there you go. There is uh, Dave's take on it. And uh, when when is the window closed for for um, voting? Well, I you know uh, I voted last week for the nominee. So I think all the different branches voted last week to get their nominations. Okay. So I haven't gotten the full ballot yet. Okay. Uh, but I will tell you that the ninety fifth uh, Oscars will be held on Sunday. March 12th, 2023 at the Dolby theater, uh, in Hollywood. And they're going to be televised live on ABC worldwide. There you go. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll be there. Can't wait to talk more about this year's nominees as well as who wins here in the coming weeks. Yeah. It it was just, it was nice to see that they, uh, actually, um, uh, nominated a lot of movies that, 
people have actually seen. There you go. Yeah. I, I think you're right though. I mean, they don't have an audience that it's been dwindling for years and years and it's almost become a joke um, to a lot of us that are pop culturists because we look at it and go, this is just the elite celebrating the elite, you know? It it, exactly. Yeah. That, that's what it was feeling like, I think for many years. And, and it was kind of a shame because uh, you know, in my mind, uh films that are hugely popular that a lot of people go see should get some kind of recognition uh because they are doing their job they're entertaining the masses yeah 100 percent. i feel that way and and that's why i think the grammys have loosened up so much they learned a lot from the american music awards um and billboard awards and things of that nature for the music side of things yeah. because it was just the elite celebrating the elite and then you realize like nobody goes out and purchases these records. Like wh why are you totally thumbing your nose at, at the rest of the people that actually buy your product? Yeah. Right? You know, I, I, it almost feels like they should put a couple new categories in for like art house movies, you know oh, what I mean? For sure. So, 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 so to differentiate the, you know, uh, be between films that the masses go see and uh and art house films you know that that are really for the elite you know? yeah sure sure that 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 like that kind of stuff you know yeah um well speaking of something that is not elitist in any way shape form or fashion the simpsons family guy and one of your favorite animated shows bob's burgers i know I, 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 was, I was thrilled to see this and they they nabbed two season renewals that yeah. means each one of those shows, The Simpsons, Family Guy, and Bob's Burgers, have been picked up for two additional seasons of new shows, which I think is fantastic. And I'll tell you right now, The Simpsons is the longest-running uh, show ever on television. And with these two seasons, I think it takes it to almost 800 episodes of The Simpsons. Sure. sure. So here we are. Well, the... the this two season reel will certainly do that. It's a uh, 750 episodes of the Simpsons, 400 episodes of family guy and 250 episodes of Bob's burgers. I feel like Fox has always done a really good job of doing animation that strikes a chord with pop culture and, and, and yeah. fans across the globe. And yep. I feel like it continues to do so. Disney would be foolhardy not to renew them because they <laughs> have such a huge audience and people do subscribe. Uh, to see these shows and i think it's great I, would you consider this um kind of like a golden age of you know animated tv shows would you would you say oh i absolutely without question i think it has been for a number of years mm -hmm. uh i i think especially when, when you get you know shows uh that were you know like uh um uh bojack horseman and uh archer and mm -hmm. you know shows like that that appeal to an adult audience um i absolutely think that you know it goes back to the heyday of the flintstones and the jetsons and things like that uh but it takes it further down the line so to speak i can tell you that gen x my my generation we loved animated shows from liquid television from mtv to the cartoon network forming and having stuff like you know um all the all the really cool cutting edge stuff that they have robot chicken and the different shows they would have archer and different things i think we just kind of you know through college we just loved it so much you know yeah um those animated shows and now that 
we're older, we still enjoy them. And I don't think there's any differentiation. For me, there's not a differentiation between an animated sitcom and a regular sitcom because they are just, they're just hilarious. They're just great, good quality stuff through and through. So, Oh no, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I have to say, you know, the Simpsons, I mean, you can literally watch a Simpsons episode every single day of the year for two years without repeating yourself. One hundred percent. I mean, that that's crazy, isn't it? it I, is. And I think it's fa- I think it's fantastic, too. There, there's certainly the ratings are there and the audience is there. Uh, the Simpsons rule. As yeah. far as I'm concerned, so does so does uh, Bob's Burgers and and Family Guy. You know, yeah. they're they're so well written. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, in our regrets for this week, we have another legendary actor who passes away. Um, Little Shop of Horrors and other Roger Corman films. Big fan of that. Wally Campo had passed away at the tender age of ninety nine. Dave. Yeah. And you know, what's amazing is that, uh, you know, he had a terrific career. Uh, when you see a picture of him, uh, you'll immediately go, Oh, he, I, I recognize him. Uh-huh. You know, uh, you don't necessarily recognize the name as much as you recognize the face because you've seen him in so many things. Yeah. Um, so, but what a life, I mean, you know, we should all be so lucky to live to be 99 or a hundred, you know, and uh, he certainly did. He had a full life and leaves behind a wonderful body of work. 100%. Campo directed documentaries in Africa, India, stateside, and helmed one of the features, Mark of the Gun. And uh, and then it was later released the same year and uh, as Easy Rider. So, uh, you know, I think, I think the good thing about this is that he lived to see so many changes uh, in the media, and I, it just blows me away. I told Kristen, I said, "Can you imagine Disney turning 100 years old? You know, yeah. and this actor being 99. How much film and media has changed over the course of that hundred years? It's amazing. Oh, it, it, it's it's shocking, isn't it? I mean, I, I'm I'm still blown away. You know, I, I look at the fact that some of the films that I love are, you know, 30, 40 years old now, and yeah, I go, I, I'm just going, where has this time gone? I remember this, seeing this film like it was yesterday, and it's just wonderful. But anyway, uh, Wally Campo, rest in peace, rest in peace. And now here's our featured interview with our good friend Dan Jupe here on Skull Rock Podcast. Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast Interview Time Well Al John once again we've got a fantastic guest he's an old friend of mine he's an animator a story supervisor director Dan Jupe is with us in the house and let's hear it from there there we go the peanut gallery's going nuts already Dan welcome to the show Oh thank you it's nice to be here you guys Hey, listen, uh, you know, what I love about uh, doing this podcast is that I get to catch up with people like you who I don't normally see out in the world, especially yeah. because of the pandemic over the last couple of years, obviously. But but also even even then, sometimes our paths don't don't cross, you know, yeah. and uh and, and so I'm really thrilled to have you on uh, on the show because I want I want to talk with you about your career and what you're doing now and all of that stuff. But but before we get to that, I always like to ask how how did you get started? How did you get down this path of I'm going to go into animation? Because everybody has different stories, but I, I want to hear what your story is. All right. Uh, well, I'll try to keep it brief, but um, you know, it's sort of you know, started very young. I mean, I, 
I was sort of drawing at like three, four years old. And, you know, my mom and teachers were starting to discover that I, I could draw well. I would watch the Flintstones as a kid and I could draw them from memory. And that I just didn't think of it was of any big deal. But my parents and adults could were kind of wowed by it. And then um, soon after that, the Disney programs would come on at Christmas time and they'd show like a compilation of all kinds of things. And I remember seeing Lady and the Tramp clip, you know, of the spaghetti sequence. And I was just like at four years old, just literally hooked to that. Real, you know, saw that and thought, man, that's I, as much as I liked watching the Flintstones and Alvin and those things, I was mesmerized by that. And I just kind of knew that's what I wanted to do at that young age. And um, as I got older, I, you know, I had friends that could draw. My brothers could draw pretty well. And when I was around the sixth grade, some kid had in my class, his mom had, had gave him this book, uh, the Preston Blair book. And I was like, oh, my God, this th I've got to get this book. So I ran home after school. I told my mom, hey, this kid had this book. I think they sell them at this paint store that we go to. And those books were like two bucks. But to this day, it's one of the very best books ever done on animation. You know, I'm smiling because I can't tell you how many guests we've had on this show that bring up the Preston Blair book, including myself, by the way. I, I had that book when I was in high school. Yeah. You know, and, and you're right. It, they were on racks. They, there was like a rack of these like, uh, what was it? The Foster books or something. Walter Foster, Walter book. Foster books. Yeah. There was a rack of them at the art supply store that I would go to. And yeah. and that's, you know, I got that Preston Blair book and so many other animators and uh, art, animation artists ha had that book when they were kids. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's amazing to this day. And so when I look at it now, I think, gosh, you know, this has got to have been you know, um, it's basically all the principles that probably came out of the Disney school back in the 30s. You know, it's yeah. all those basic principles. And it's, it's just an awesome book. And so I just sort of nerded out over that and started making flip books. And eventually, um, you know, I'd save money. I had paper routes and worked at Burger King and stuff like that. I'd save for, for equipment. I bought a camera. I bought uh, somehow I was able to get the dress to cartoon color and I bought a disc and a desk and I started teaching myself how to animate. And um, there weren't a whole lot of books out there at the time, you know, and and what they did have out there, what was available was, um, you know, the big um, uh, Christopher Finch Art of Walt Disney book, mm -hmm. you know, the Disney Super 8 videos. Those were great to have. They were, they were not cheap, though. So if I could get some of those once in a while, I'd save up for them. I had a little editor and I'd study animation from the features, you know, and um, just kind of learn from that. And uh, when I was in high school, I had um, I started switching into jobs doing commercial art for local businesses. And there was a guy that him, he was an Italian guy named Mario Catelfio. Him and his brothers owned all these pizza shops and delis in the area and, and all my friends my older brothers would work there but i got to know mario and i started doing sign painting for him and i designed a little character of him and it was all on their pizza boxes and stuff and at a certain point he kind of took me under his wing and, he, and was really fascinated that i was in the animation and i started sort of trying to find a way how can i do like a full color 
film. And so I asked him, I said, hey, I got an idea. I got the Super 8 camera. Why don't we do like a training film for your new employees? I'll shoot some live action, how you do things around here. And maybe I can do like a little minute cartoon with the character and do it in full color. And he said, well, how much would it cost to do it? And I go, well, let me go back and, you know, work out a budget. And I and I came back and I said, you know, all the supplies will cost about five or six hundred bucks. He says, OK. So I did. It and, I, you know, it took about a year to do it. But it was like a commercial. It was like a minute yeah. long. And I did all the cells and the color and the background and everything. And to try to wrap this up, he liked it so much. He wound up putting it uh, on television in local in local Detroit area. Wow the commercial so and so then eventually you know um i i started writing the disney animators i wrote ward kimball like when i was 13 huh. wrote me back and um gave me all this great advice and then i eventually heard about eric larson and i wrote him and and then he he sort of took me under his wing when i was like in high school and just taught told me about cal arts and set me on the path to cal arts so that's when, when did you go to Cal Arts? I went to Cal Arts in 1981. So okay. I I was 17 when I graduated high school, and that's well, I was 17 when I started um, Cal Arts. Yeah. How was that for you going right from high school to Cal Arts? Well, it was super exciting. I mean, I couldn't wait to move out of here because I kind of I had this relationship and friendship with Eric since yeah. I was in ninth or tenth grade. And he had told me about Cal Arts, and I kind of gotten accepted while I was in high school. So it was like, oh my god, I can't wait to just come out there. And so it was, it was like a dream come true. And it was my first day out here was crazy. I mean, just I flew out by myself and landed in LAX and took the bus. Wow, out there. you you flew, man! Yeah. You 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 were styling. I, I, I drove a beat, beat up Volkswagen Beetle out from New York. Oh, no kidding. Wow. I drove cross country. Crazy. Good for you, man. Wow. That's pretty daring. I know, really. I didn't know a soul west of the Mississippi. So, wow. So, you, you get to Los Angeles, you, you get up to Cal Arts, and I think you came in a year after I started at Cal Arts. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think so and, you were in Rob's class. And- yeah. Yeah. I was a year ahead of you. So, um, uh, so you did what? Two, three, four years. What'd you do? Uh, I did two years. I started my third year and then, uh, the business at that time was a bit funky as you remember. Yeah. Disney yeah. was doing, you know, black cauldron and there were, they weren't taking as many people from Cal arts at that time. Yeah. And, um, was kind of nervous about the business actually. And um, myself and Wendell Luby, who was in the class behind me, we were offered jobs at Don Bluth. So even though I was really wanting to work at Disney, there wasn't much happening for me at that time. And I got, got kind of nervous. And so once I got that offer, I thought, I'm just going to go for it. You know, what'd you work on at Don Bluth? Well, uh, at the time, they I worked on a sequel to Dragon's Lair, which was the video game that they had. Yeah, so, okay. Yeah. So they were wrapping up Space Ace, and, and Dragon's Lair 2 was in full production. So I just started were right Were you there up. when they went bankrupt? Yeah, yeah, I was only there. I quit school. This is what was so crazy about it. So my dad was so pissed off because I left school. I started my third year. I had my my third year film already boarded throughout the summer and ready to go. 
And then this offer came up and I'm like, I got to do this. So I dropped everything. I rented an apartment in, in Valencia. I had the car. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to swear. That's I all right. We'll, we'll, crappy, we'll, we'll bleep you out. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I bought this crappy old Mustang off of Chris Bailey. That was like half a 1969 and a 1970 Mustang. And it just broke down every day. And um, yeah, so I had this job for just about a year and all of a sudden one day, right before the holidays, um, people came, somebody came into our office. We were in an annex building. They said, Hey, Don wants to to talk with everybody in the studio because we, we, there's something he wants to tell you. So we go into the main building and Don stands up on top of the receptionist desk and he's handing out all these papers to everybody. And he says, Hey, we got a little, problem here you know we it's just a little bump in the road we got some finance problems but we're going to be back to work in a month so just you know we're gonna let everybody off today we can't meet the payroll but you know we'll call you back in a month or two and then that never happens so oh, right right um, i i remember that we were all in the parking lot yeah yeah remember that yeah i do remember that because i did work on dragon's lair and space ace before i went to disney for black cauldron okay yeah so must have been an i you must have been in the main office. There. I, I No, I was in the annex. Oh, you were? Okay. I, I was in the annex, and I don't know if you remember this, but uh, down the hall, we, we were on the second floor of the annex building, and down the hall, there was uh, there was like an agency that was, ca- they, they were a casting agency for uh, adult films. <laughs> I don't I know if you remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like every, every day there was these, oh these beautiful women coming up the stairs Jeez, and going down the hall. <laughs> and apparently the casting guys would have them take their clothes off and oh then they'd shoot God. a couple of Polaroids. And then the guys would come down and share the Polaroids with us later in the day. <laughs> oh my God. I had no idea. You know, something It was craziness. It was total craziness. And, you know, I was a kid out of school. You know, I was I had just gotten out of Cal Arts. I was in my early 20s, you know, and I was just like, okay, like I was waiting to go back to New York to do commercials. You know, I I was just like, yeah, okay, I'll do this. And then when they went went, when they went belly up, I thought, well, I'll go back to New York. And then a friend of mine over at Disney said, well, they need help trying to get the Black Cauldron finished. And that's how I got over there. But what, so what did you do when, when, when Don said, we're, we're, we've collapsed, we have no, we can't pay you. I immediately, this is so crazy. I immediately walked across the street. I had about 50 cents in my pocket. We were at uh, Ventura Boulevard on the yeah. corner of uh, Laurel Canyon and Ventura. And I called Eric Larson from a payphone. <laughs> and I said, and I got him on the line. I went through the studio operator and I he picked up and I said, I got, I'm in big trouble. You know, I just got laid off and there's money problems here. And he was like, oh, well, I'm really sorry to hear that, you know. And he was very friendly about it. He because well, I don't think we're in a position right now to hire anybody, you know, but let's have lunch soon. So we had lunch and they just weren't hiring. And so yeah. I was screwed and I I just went home for the holidays, came back. And then I was right back to doing like big head caricatures at Magic Mountain and Universal, which was my summer job at CalArts. And, and that, and that's really like you're doing whatever you need to do to, to make yeah. a few bucks, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then eventually I was, I, was just working on a bunch of Saturday morning stuff. I worked for DIC and all the, all the different studios, anything I could get, you know, but it was real piecemeal and really sketchy, rough time for a few years there. 
Yeah, yeah. Did um, I, I want to ask you about the caricatures? Did you enjoy doing those? I had a blast. I mean, yeah. it was Dan Hofstede, who you know, yes, yeah, in my class, who hired myself and a bunch of us to to work there. And after my first year Cal Arts, he kind of corralled us. He taught us the ropes. It was very formulaic and right um, and all that. But I had a blast. I mean, I had a lot of fun. I, I worked a lot with Kirk Wise mm-hmm. uh, in the double booth there. Um, and they had one up in the front of the of the park that we used to call the refrigerator because it looked just like a small refrigerator. <laughs> and one night I I wanted to ditch early. It was like a Monday night and there was no business. And I thought, man, I'm, I want to get it out of here, you know. So I, they had these barn doors on the on the on the thing and I just closed up. And there's a lock from the outside, a padlock that was loose. And I was counting the till and stuff. And people were leaving the park. And some prankster kids came by and locked, locked me in that thing. And they were pushing me around. It's on wheels. And like three hours later, Dan Hofstad finds me like way in front of the park. Oh, my God. So. Now, was that was that a concession or were you working for Six Flags or were you working for, you ha- working ha- for Dan's was father? A, was it his father that had the concession? No, it was a friend of Dan's, a guy named Lee Harvin. And Lee uh-huh. Harvin had worked for years at Disneyland and all the parks. And he'd set up a contract with all these parks mm-hmm. where they would get a, like a buck. He'd get a buck and we get a buck or whatever the, the split was. Right. And so, but of course he was managing all these people and he could do them himself as well, but he was, of course, the businessman profiting, you know, largely sure. from it, but it was good money for us. I mean, it was, it was sure. It, it was better than flipping burgers, right? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I was very happy to have that job and it, it was close to school. And the only, the only time it got rough, like I said, I had a crappy car and sometimes I would have to drive to universal and I'd, I'd have two different shifts and every time I'd be driving across in Hollywood, you know, my car would break down. I'd be, I'd be almost to Universal and be going up that hill. My car uh, would crap out. Yeah. And there'd be people coming to the park. And it was like, ah, oh, it was just hell, you know. I, you know, I, I think we could probably do an entire episode of just car stories <laughs> from early careers in animation. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because exactly. I certainly have my share. That's for sure. But yeah. uh, so, so you were doing caricatures. But let me ask you this, because I was looking at, I was looking over all the projects you worked on. Star yeah. Chaser, The Legend of Orin. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, was that like your first credit? Probably. Um, it seems yeah, like it is, I at least in IMDb. Was. You know. Yeah, probably so. Yeah, somehow I can't remember how I got that job. But this guy uh, was doing this. I got caught wind that someone was doing this feature. Maybe Chris Bailey was on it already. He had recommended me. And um, that's how I met Bill Croyer. Okay. So this was a sci-fi movie that was uh, was 3D. And um, it's the first feature I'd done. It's very realistic, too. I'm more of a cartoon guy, you know. When you say 3D, are you saying it wasn't CG? It was, it, it was actually like you put 3D glasses on. Stereoscopic glasses, okay. yeah. And so it was, it was pretty cool. I mean, they had, I think the guy. Was it, was it these kinds of glasses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, so it's like the red and blue 3D glasses. That's okay. And a glass. So we were in this office building in Woodland Hills. And I think it was, it was Bill Croyer, myself, Chris Bailey. I think Chris Rutkowski was on that. 
Um, was this was this Mike filmation? Gino. Was it filmation? No, it was. I can't remember the name of the company. It was an Asian-based company that had okay in L.A. Yeah, and um, they were producing it, and I was just happy to have a job. Yeah, but man, I was I was doing cleanup on this thing, and it was like very realistic comic book kind of characters that I really didn't have a lot of experience with. So, but I, I managed to get through it, and. Um, I think I got hired back years later at that company, the same company that did Care Bears, or it might have continued into the Care Bear movie. I can't really remember. Uh-huh. And Sabino was there and Dave Woodman and a bunch of people yeah. that came to Disney after, you know. And, and, and after that picture, you did come to Disney for Great Mouse. Yeah, Detective. well, what happened, I was saved because I all that time, you know, I was trying to get into Disney. They weren't hiring. And there was this shaky ground of like the Black Cauldron didn't do well. Great Mouse Detective was in production. They had finished uh, Mickey's Christmas Carol kind of like right after I got out of school. Yeah. left school. And there was just nothing happening. I was constantly knocking on the door. And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, oh, and then then around that time, the takeover happened. Right. There there was a big management change out. Yeah. yeah. And that suddenly was... I get this call randomly out of the blue from Daryl Ben Sitters. Mm-hmm. Now I'd met Daryl, you know, at Cal Arts because he'd come up afterwards and and sort of check out the shows and stuff. Yeah. But he was um heading up a special projects unit unit that was kind of um, set up through the marketing department. And mm-hmm. they were trying to revive the classic characters. And he was directing this uh, featurette called Sport Goofy. And so they the were infamous Sport Goofy. Infamous Sport lot, Goofy. Lots of stories behind that one. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, they had an office set up in Burbank near, you know, downtown Burbank. And um, it was completely away from the studio and um, I was just happy to be working f- for them now. And, you know, it was myself, Chris Buck and Ed Gomber. We were directing animators on it. And Joe Ramp had already written the boards on it, but he was there all the time. Yeah. And uh, Mike Giamo was, had done character designs with Kelly Asbury doing layout. And it was a great little unit there. And um, the idea was after that, you know, as you probably know, Daryl Ben Sitters was the catalyst for getting Roger Rabbit uh, purchased, you know, yeah, and, and set up as a movie years prior to that. And so we were supposed to roll right off of that movie or right off of the goofy thing and do Roger Rabbit once the Mechie's scheduled. Got freed up. But then was, um, Suddenly, Peter Schneider came over from Disney, and he introduced himself. He was running the, the department there, and he was basically saying, hey, we're probably going to shut this unit down. We don't know what's going to happen with you guys. And he, at that time, behind the scenes, I think Daryl found out that he was not going to be involved with Roger Rabbit, and Spielberg was involved, and they wanted yeah. Richard Williams to do it. Yeah. So, yeah, so then I then we were the the rest of us were kind of moved over to feature animation to kind of help out on Great Mouse Detective. And um, I thought, okay, finally, I'm at feature animation. They were had already moved to Flower Street in this warehouse building. Mm -hmm. And um, and then after just animating a handful of scenes, I was laid off. There was a bunch of people laid off at that point. It was kind of up and up for grabs as to what was going to happen to the department. Yeah, it it was it was somewhat of a tenuous time. 
you know? I, yeah. I mean, I think there was a lot of nervousness uh, uh, with the new management coming in because actually, you know, once Michael Eisner, Frank Wells came in and then Jeffrey Katzenberg and a lot of people from Paramount came over, um, I, you know, there, there was a sense that they were going to immediately shut down the animation department had it not been for uh, Roy E., yeah. Uh, Roy e. Disney, uh, who basically said, uh, you know, if animation w- is well, the company will be well. Yeah. Uh, and so he became sort of the godfather, the chairman of the animation department. And uh, he and, saved and, it for all of us. Well, he, he not only saved it, but he really was the he, he was the catalyst uh, yeah. for that. uh um, what what everybody now refers to as the renaissance of animation that we were all part of. Absolutely, and he yeah. he convinced them. He said, "Look, this is the this is the thing that drives everything." Yeah, it's the impetus for all the rides at the parks and you know all the merchandise, etc. So every time I'd run into Roy years afterwards at a party or a, you know event. I would always thank him for saving the department because he was the guy, you know, he, he was, he was. So you get laid off, which probably was a shock, big shock. And, and it just and, because I finally got there, you know? Yeah. And, and so what did you do? Because you, you, you did on your credits here, it says amazing stories, principal animator. Yeah. So what happened was um, I'm not sure how I got the call or got reconnected, but Brad Bird uh, had had gotten a hold of me, and I think I had met him once years ago at CalArts, or somebody told him about me, or whatever. And so he I got, he gave me a call, and he says, "Hey, I've got this this animated thing that I'm going to do for this uh, Spielberg's anthology show, Amazing Story. It's going to be fully animated, and um, why don't we come over and and I'll show it to you." And so at that point. Um, he had only had, if you remember, if you've seen that show, there's three separate shorts. Um, it's not a continuous story for that half hour. And the first segment is about five or seven minutes long or whatever. That had already been storyboarded and designed by Tim Burton. Again, as Brad and Tim had worked with each other prior to that. Yeah. And so Brad says, hey, I got to flesh out the rest of this to fill out the half hour. You can help me storyboard this. And then you'll you'll animate that. So I was like, thank God. I all of a sudden I fell into this other job, and Brad, we boarded it and started hiring everybody. And that whole summer or whatever how long it was, um, I, I can't even remember how long the production was, but uh, we set up shop in this it's animation. It's got to be months and months and months. Yeah, yeah. It was almost <laughs> a year. Yeah. So so here we were exactly. You know. Um, it was he set up shop in this building downtown LA and we were all in this big open space and we we worked on it that whole time, you know. So that was pretty fun. I got to know Brad and we were we became really good friends at that time. And, and that became kind of a bridge for you then, right? I mean, because that was a bridge for you to go on to Oliver and Company, which would yeah. have been about the timeline, right? When you finished Absolutely. amazing stories, you were like, bang, I'm right back into Disney. With yeah, well, what happened was I had a few months left to animate on it, and I got a call from Ed Hansen. And somehow he had the phone number for where we were in this building. And I, I he says, hey, uh, you want to come back and do story on, on Oliver and Company? And I said, I said, well, I, I got to finish my obligation here, but I'll be done in a few months. He goes, all right, well, by then we'll be probably done with story. And you can come on and animate it. Would that sound good? And I said, 
sounds great. So that made me feel good that I had yeah. something lined up right after that. Yeah. So I finished up Family Dog, and then I was back to Disney, and I was like, thank God I'm on something, you know? Yeah. And I worked on Oliver there, yeah. So now, so you did Family Dog. Was that part of the amazing stories? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So what yeah. happened was Brad. I, I, and, and for a moment here, I, 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 I'm sorry to interrupt. For a moment, I, I actually flashed on Hollywood Dog. Because there was around that time, oh. there was an animated show called Hollywood Dog, which, which was a live okay. action animation uh, 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 show that they were trying to do for television, you know. But Family Dog was the Brad okay. Bird project. That's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So what happened was Brad had had this previous relationship with Spielberg. He had worked on as a writer on this movie called Batteries Not Included. Mm -hmm. And he got to know Spielberg around that time. And when Amazing Stories became a show, an anthology live action show, he, he you know, pitched this idea of doing an animated episode and Spielberg liked it. And so, yeah, that was that was it. And, so. and and our audience should know Steven Spielberg's a big animation fan, massive Disney fan too. Yeah, I mean, I mean like he, he collects animation art, and yeah. he's a big animation fan. Yeah, and I and and incidentally, back in the day when I would go visit Eric Larson, we would sit and have these long talks about Spielberg and George Lucas, and how frustrated Eric was because. They he knew that both Spielberg and Lucas were huge fans of Walt and, and all those films, and he was trying to get Ron Miller to get one of those guys to take over the film division. And mm. you know, and they had opportunities to do Star Wars and Raiders, and they get and Disney had passed on those movies. I know and Eric was super frustrated because he'd get these scripts and he'd read them. He's like, We we should buy this, we should get these guys in here. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the rest is history. Woulda, shoulda, coulda, you yeah, know, back exactly. in those days. But yeah. so you come back onto Oliver and Company, and you have a you have a decent run. I had a really good run, yeah, because things were what. Well, see, what was wild is that you know Oliver and Company, and I think maybe Little Mermaid was still was being worked on, but Oliver and Company was the only one that was really kind of ready to go in the eyes of you know, Katzenberg and those guys that were running it now. And so like, okay, I'm grateful to be back. I, you know, I was working under Mark Hen and Mike Gabriel and, you know, I really liked those guys. And so it was, you know, it was working out pretty well. There was still kind of that feeling like, well, is there going to be something after this? Yeah. And then I would just, I know that John and Ron and Howard, they had gotten Howard Ashman and Alan Menken in. And so that was kind of cooking along at the end of the other end of the building. You could hear the music you know, the demos being played by those guys and you knew something was going, but there was still no guarantee. And I remember after when Oliver and company was done and, and, you know, Katzberg and those guys were kind of surprised that it had done well. Yeah. And so they, they had a little champagne party and they were like, okay, I think we're going to, this is a moneymaker. I think we're going to do this, you know? So. Well, was, and you know, the, that movie made money and, and then Mermaid was off the charts for yeah. its time. Yeah. Uh, and you got to remember they were making live action movies like Cabin Boy, you exactly. know, which were, which were tanking, you totally. know, so yeah. he was basking in the glow of the successes. That's right. Yeah. And, and I think he, he started seeing kind of what it could be and getting yeah. way more involved and interested in it too at that. Time. Yeah. And, and, and really did take an interest in it and got himself educated on it. 
yeah on the yeah. process and all of that mm-hmm. but which you got to give them credit for doing that absolutely so, so you you went on to little mermaid you went from oliver and company yeah. you went on to little mermaid you were doing yeah. character animation yeah uh, on mermaid and any uh anything come to mind when you think about yeah little yeah mermaid? well I, I just remember like prior to going on to it we were kind of you know maybe several months nearing the end of oliver and company i remember Howard Ashman calling us all into that little theater on Flower Street to kind of, you know, introduce the staff to what they were working on. And he had all these demos of the movie. And um, I I didn't know much about Howard Ashman. I only knew that he had done Little Shop of Horrors and I loved that play and loved the music from it. I thought, okay, this guy's got something on the ball here. And, he, you know, he shows this presentation with all these songs. And, and I thought, oh my God, this guy, you know, he's got this movie in a really great place. These songs were awesome. Even in the demo form, Yeah, they were funny. They were advancing the story and thought, Oh my gosh, we got this, a real creative producer here. This is going to be really exciting, you know? So I, I was really looking forward to jumping on that. And um, at the time when I was going to start on it, I wasn't sure what character that I'd be, you know, working on it. I know Rob Minkoff was doing tests of Ursula mm-hmm. and he was going, you should, you know, try to do Ursula. And I was like, ah, I'm not sure if I'm ready to do that yet. And, and then, and I saw some model sheets that Chris Buck had done. I thought maybe I'll, I'd like to do Sebastian. So I got on the Sebastian unit and um, my, I got a good sequence. You know, I, I have a little bit of a music background and I had done song sequence in Oliver and company that's singing, uh, Dodgers song, the Billy Joel song, Mm -hmm. did a lot of that. And I think John Musker saw that and put me on the kiss, the girl sequence. And so my first assignment was, you know, Sebastian singing on the cattail. I did a good chunk of that stuff where he's singing and then some of the other animals. Yeah. And I I did some of the first scenes of the Prince, even though I think Tony Ficilli was cast as the lead on that. Um, I did a couple scenes of that myself, and um, I actually photographed myself. That we had these big clunky video recorders, and I still yeah. have my little printouts of that. You know, some of the scenes where he's singing in his ear, and he kind of turns. And some of the I forget who it was. One of the cleanup guys who cleaned up that was kind of lobbying for me to do the prince at that point because I had done those two scenes. And I was like. I don't want to do the prince. <laughs> I want to stick with the fun stuff, you know. You, you you like more rounded, cartoony characters, right? I mean, well, that's... I mean, at that point, I I just felt like I wanted to do something that was comedic, you know. Yeah. I mean, okay. at this point, I'm more, you know, I feel like I've got more experience. Where if I had to handle a character like that, I could. It's just not as, it's just probably not as fun because it's more of a straight character and well it's humanoid and 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 probably a little stiffer than 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 you would think right i mean you know then then the fun you could have with a more cartoony yeah exactly i mean you know you hear these stories or these interviews with milk hall where he had he would get stuck with a prince on sleeping beauty and and he did an amazing job with that but he wasn't that thrilled about having to do that kind of stuff you know because it was so painstaking you know yeah but he was excellent and that's why he was cast to do them. So, right. Right. And, and I, and I think that, you know, when you're, when, when you're in the animation business, you, you got to take the good and the bad, 
you know, Absolutely. you're, 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 you're not always going to get cast the, the most desirable things you want to do. And yeah. occasionally you're going to hand it something. You're going to kind of roll your eyes, but you power through it. Right. You yeah. Do, you do your best. You do your best. And on this one, I just got lucky because I was, there was so much footage of Sebastian on that movie. And of course, Duncan Marjorie Banks was the, the supervising animator and we had Jay Jackson on there, and but a lot of people worked on it. But I got, I was able to do a good chunk of that, not all of it, but yeah. Um, and then I, then Glenn wanted me, Glenn Keen wanted me to be do all the Sebastian stuff uh, around his part of the world song, you know. So right. that is why I jumped on after that, did a bunch of scenes prior to that, during and after that. Yeah, that's a little bit more acting scenes at the end of that. So, and then just a couple little minor things throughout the thing. But I, I had a blast on that film. Cause it just, that character in the movie was great. And I just remember when we, when it was finally finished and I think it was, I was with Rick Farmlo. We went and saw the the opening premiere day at, at, at the Cinerama Dome. And it was like the noon show. And like, we were like one of the only guys in the, in the place, you know, it's like a Thursday afternoon or something. And it was so cool to see it. And we just walked, we were like walking on a cloud out there. We just knew it was going to be a hit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, It was pretty fun. And it was, it was, Yeah, it did very well. And from there you went on to Prince and the Pauper. So you, you're reunited with uh, George Scribner who did Oliver and company. Well, it wasn't immediately onto that. See, I was kind of lobbying. I wanted to direct in the way to get in direction was, to, through story yeah so i i was lobbying to after mermaid to go into story and at that time there wasn't a very big story department you know right. they didn't really have a lot of things in development so i was able to you know move in to to development but, but right before doing anything any projects i would you know i was supposed to work on this project that tim hauser had developed called Goofy the Apes, which is a half-hour featurette with the classic characters. Right. And but prior to working on that, I uh Gary and Kirk were doing Cranium Command for yep. for Epcot. So I was all of a sudden animating on that. Okay. It was fine. But I but but then I then I got on this goofy project that was a blast and it was a really fun thing. And um uh, I can't remember how long I worked on it, but I did a lot of development art and boarded a lot of that. And there was a lot of excitement around that. And Prince and the Popper was well underway. And we were kind of hoping we would do that after Prince and the Popper, but then turned out management didn't want to do it. And it got canned and, and I kind of bopped around for a while. I did some other things for the park. I got to meet Jim Henson. Mm, I did a, a nice. little of Mickey Mouse interacting with, with with uh kermit and then i then i i worked briefly on beauty and the beast story was pretty much done but i did a little stuff on that did some experimental designs with gaston right but then then got on to prince and the pauper and and worked on that and how was that did you, did you have fun with that i mean those i did because i got characters. to do mickey i got yeah. to do mickey i was pretty good at drawing mickey at that point and and um well, pretty much all the scenes I I got were worth Mickey, so that was pretty fun. And you know, I always liked drawing those old classic characters. And um, yeah, so I finished on that, and you know, it was a weird period at that time because through my friendship with Brad, Brad was behind the scenes getting offered to to kind of work on The Simpsons and be 
Right. They wanted them to direct them The Simpsons when they were going to do a series, but Brad was just had made a deal with them to, um, you know, sort of oversee boards and be a consultant. And Brad had asked myself and Rich Moore and, you know, I think David Silverman was already part of that to be the first directors of that first season. So I was going to leave Disney at that point to direct on the first season of The Simpsons, but I had just signed a two-year contract. And so I had asked Peter, I said, hey, can I, you know, is there some way that you guys, I got this opportunity to direct and um, could you, my, my option is going to come up pretty soon. Yeah. Could you just not pick it up? Cause I'd really like to do this. And if it doesn't work out, you know, no, I'll just come back if that's okay with you guys, it's an opportunity. And that just didn't go well. And so they, <laughs> they upped me anyway, and I missed that opportunity. Uh, and so even though I was happy to have a job and working on Prince and the Pauper and all that, it was, it was a missed opportunity. And that was very frustrating. So, right, right. you know, and so after Prince and the Pauper, I, I left and uh, I had an opportunity to work with Bill Croyer. He was doing Fern Gully and setting that up. Right, right. And so you were on that for a while. Yeah, I was on that for gosh, I think maybe a couple of years at least. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had a blast on that because I had already knew Bill and Sue really well. Yeah, you know, a good friendship with them, and a lot of my close friends were going to work on that too. Tony Ficilli, Doug Frankel, um, Ralph Eggleston, uh, Tim Hauser wound up on it as well, and yeah. uh, it was a cool thing because I got a, an opportunity to do a lot of different things on that. I was yeah. able to do a lot of character design work and, and um, you were a sequence director. I was a sequence director. There was a song sequence in that Tim Curry did this toxic log love song. And I boarded and directed that. And, and that was just, I just got a chance to do a lot of things. And so that was really fun. You know what? I was, I was surprised when I was looking over your credits, uh, I was surprised to see the Ren and Stimpy show. That I had no idea you were a timing director because I worked on, uh, I think it was either four and a half or five and a half seasons of six. Was it five seasons? Yeah, I think it so. Was five, so I did four and a half of the five seasons. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, that came about sort of by accident. I, I had finished um, up on um, on Fern Gully and there was a layoff. Yeah. And I kind of wasn't sure what I was going to do next. And, and some of my friends, I think it might have been Doug Frankel, had told me about Ren and Stimpy and I, and it would become this phenomenon and I hadn't seen it. I didn't know what it was. And I said, look, I just want to take some time off and try to develop some projects of my own. So, you know, I was a bachelor, I had money saved and I was living below my means. And I thought, well, I'll check this out. So I went over there and John Kay was still, uh, was he still there? He was still there. He hadn't, he hadn't gotten the boot yet. Well, he hadn't gotten the boot. So he was still at Spunko, right on Melrose there. (laughs) Right by Paramount Pictures. Yeah. And it's kind of, you know, so they had this little funky building and and I I knew a lot of, all of a sudden I walk in there and I see all these people that I knew working in there, doing layout and doing timing and whatever. And so I had my portfolio with me, but I I just wanted to do timing directing because it was like, okay, I want to just work a couple days a week. And then I'll, on the, on my off time, I'll work on these feature ideas that I wanted. And so I got there and I, you know, talked with a few people and then all of a sudden John Kay interviews me. Right. 
And I go in there. I'd never met him before. And he, he's, you know, pretty enthusiastic guy, kind of a crazy guy. But I liked him. He had a good energy. You're so you know? diplomatic, Dan. You know, I'm trying to be cool. <laughs> so, you know, he says, he says, look, you know, he goes, can I see your portfolio? And I, and I, and I you know, he takes a look. At oh, he goes, and, and you're an animator. You know animation. You, you're, an, you're an actual animator. He goes, he goes, look, I got a problem here because uh, I'm really behind schedule on these shows. And I got all these great animators and, and or, I mean, layout guys, but none of them can animate. They don't know anything about timing. And he goes, and I'm really behind schedule. He goes, how would you like to help me direct the rest of these? Which really meant, I mean, he'd already boarded them. He had yeah. the vision for them, yeah. but they were all up on reels and he he needed somebody to go in there and work with the editor, help him tighten them up and, and then get them on sheets and do all yeah. that stuff. So my first, I agreed to do it. You know, I said, if you, as long as you're cool with me working three days a week, I'll do this. He goes, okay, fine. So my first gig <laughs> was a special half hour Christmas special called Stimpy's First Fart. Yes, I love that show. That's fantastic. <laughs> I did the whole snow blizzard in that. Uh, oh, you did? Uh, okay. Yeah, I did the blizzard. I did oh, a whole wow. bunch of special effects for that. Oh, crazy. It's a Christmas yeah. classic oh, at God. our house. It, wow, it's a classic. Right. It's it a is classic. a classic, yeah. 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 So I, I got hooked up with um, Mike Andrews, who is a film editor. He's gone. He went on to work, be like Jeffrey's top editor at DreamWorks. And he's worked for Paramount. He's currently working on the, the Spider-Verse sequel. Anyway, I met Mike at that point and he and I, you know, had this raw thing that we're going to start <laughs> together. And we worked on it for a day or two, timing it out, put it together. And John comes down, looks at it. He goes, what the f- he flips out. He goes, he goes, because I'm thinking, okay, this he wants a snappy. You know, I hadn't, I didn't really know what the show was. I hadn't right. really seen it. And so I'm thinking, okay, you know, get just cut as long as it needs and get out of the joke, you know. But he flipped out and he just reamed us both. And um he goes, he goes, haven't you ever seen any Huckleberry Hound cartoons? He goes, you gotta pad the stuff you know and he and he goes he goes and so i like i don't know what you're talking about. he goes hold on let me get this piece of music i want to put this piece of music in and the whole idea was he wanted it to have that weird odd timing where stuff was stretched out to make it seem crazier you know okay. and so he goes, let me sit with this for a little bit and i'll play with it he just started stretching stuff out but then I started seeing what he was looking for. I was like, oh, okay, this is supposed to just feel really uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. But uh, anyway, that was my first uh, couple instances. You know, I, for the rest of the time, he treated me great. He really, I, you know, I, I got to say, he, I've never to this day ever seen anybody pitch boards the way John Kay could pitch a show. Oh, he was incredible. I mean, he's he unbelievable. He's a showman, an absolute showman. He would get so worked up and, yeah. and pitch this thing that his glasses would fly across the room. Yeah, yeah. He'd be whacking the stuff out. But he was very respectful to me after that, and and we had a good re- rep- uh, relationship. Yeah. And, you know, he was just happy that he had somebody else, you know, that understood how to break it down for him. Yeah, t- time out to character action. You know, yeah. I, I, I have to say that that was an absolutely fun project. I was so thrilled. I, you know, the, the, the I, I don't want to go off on how I got involved because it, 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 it's, this is about <laughs> you, but uh, the, the, the fact is it was just a very fun show and I did a freelance. It was a freelance gig for me. Yeah. You know, so and, know and, that. And, we've had actually yeah. a lot of um, 
Our paths have crossed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but like you know, for me, I hardly ever went in to uh, their studio. It was like every once in a while I'd go in. Most of the time, it was like I would pop in there after hours, pick up a bunch of stuff, do what I needed to do, and then drop it. You know, so. But uh, but it was a great show. I mean, absolutely fantastic show. I wish that I wish somebody would come along and say, "Let's do a Ren and Stimpy movie." You know, because I, know, I think right? it would be huge. It would be huge. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a huge fan base. And yeah. Yeah. It would be so, a, it would be a hit. So let me ask you this. So a- after you left Disney, that's really when you started becoming story supervisor, doing more storyboarding and directing. Yeah. Yeah. And, so yeah, and, and I just wanna I just wanna ask you that you know, or preface this by saying, like, you know. What do you like doing having, you know, cause you're, you were a great animator. You are a great animator in my Thank book, you, you know? You. So the question is, do you, do you prefer directing? Do you like story supervision? What do you like doing? Well, I like it all, but I've always really wanted to direct. I've, I've had yeah. really close calls of, of, you know, not calls, but cl- close opportunities to direct and um, for one reason or another, you know, they like one of the things that happened right after that, for example, I um, well, I did direct right after the Ren and Stimpy thing. I, I've always been into movies and storytelling. So I like all of it. You know, I can't yeah, say yeah. this like anything, but I, my biggest dream to this day is to try to get an opportunity to make a film and do what the Pixar guys got to do. Right. And direct your own stuff, you know. Right. And and, you know, just very hard to get those things off, you know, to happen. Um, but what happened after Ren and Stimpy is that, you know, Rich Moore uh, was hired to produce The Critic, which was kind of a short-lived series by the same guys who did The Simpsons. And so I got a call yeah. from Rich saying, hey, we're putting a series together. Would you like to direct on this? And I said, yes. So then I, you know, I worked with him uh, on the first season of The Critic, and I directed on that. And there was, there's a lot of, I can't remember the exact timing things. There was a period where I worked with Francis Coppola br- briefly, yeah. working on some stuff. And then I was trying to still pitch stuff. And then I would, around that time, I was hired to direct uh, a movie in development for Ted Turner and Jane Fonda. It was this wolf project mm-hmm. at Turner. And so I was on that for about a year. But then, uh, without belaboring it too long here, they, they, had a takeover with AOL Time Warner and right. the producers I was working with, they secretly were not interested in doing animation and they knew that this takeover was going to happen. So they were just kind of appeasing Ted, but we got to pitch it to Ted and Jane and they loved it. He was mm-hmm. like literally brought to tears from the pitch we did. Yeah. And when are we going to make this thing? And, and then right soon after, you know, that merger happened and that was all killed. And so at that point, I was kind of like, okay, oh, oh I've, I, I got a, this is a big story right before that. Once I took the gig to direct on The Critic, I got a call while I was still on Ren and Stimpy from Joe Ramped. Mm. He says, hey, would you come over to Flower Street? John Lasseter just pitched the first Toy Story movie. He wants to pitch it to you. And I said, well, God, I just took this job directing. He says, just come over anyway. So I went over there and they just got the green light and it was like eight o'clock at night. It was pouring rain and John and Joe had all the beat boards and they pitched the whole first movie to me and they said, Hey, we're building the staff. Do you want to come up? And I was like, ah, this is going to be a huge hit, but 
I really want to direct. And I got this opportunity. So I passed on the first one. And, you know, when the movie came out, I was like kicking myself because the critic, you know, even though I was happy to have worked on it and and all that, I was like, man, that was that I love the first Toy Story film. The critic was on for what? Two seasons? Two seasons. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. So, yeah. But, you know, something you got to you got to just you got to do where, you know, what your heart tells you to do. Right. You know, absolutely. And 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 that's what? what you wanted to do. Yeah, and I and I got to work with James Brooks and all these yeah. top guys that, that you know that did the Simpsons, and I met Phil Hartman and John Lovitz, all these guys that I would never have. And I worked with Rich Moore, who was my friend, and all these yeah. guys. And he's like. he's so, a great guy. He's a great yeah. guy. So you know, I, I I I kind of feel like you know um, uh, we haven't really touched on this with with any other uh, guests that we've had on the show, but you know being in the film business is a tough business. I mean, there there are lots and lots of projects that get pitched and developed more so than ever get made. Yeah. You know, and and you could be on a project for a year and it could be like the greatest thing in the world. And through circumstances, it just doesn't get made. That's right. It just doesn't happen. By the way, uh, how was Ted Turner uh, when you met him? Oh, it's fantastic. This is a great story. Cool guy, right? Cool guy? Super cool guy. Super cool guy. So I'll try to keep this brief, but it's a pretty funny story. So he happened to be in town uh, for the Emmy Awards. And the night before our pitch, he had just won an Emmy for a nature documentary he had done. Hmm. So we knew we were going to have him in a good mood. But we had to meet him at at the Four Seasons Hotel in Pasadena on a Sunday morning at like six o'clock because he was still on uh, Atlanta time. Yeah. And so he had already meetings lined up and everything. And so we, Doug Franklin, I, and a few of us were going over there, bringing the, the boards. We had all these boards and these horses to put the boards on. And we're waiting in this outer lobby outside their suite. And, and so we're all nervous and we're, we got like maybe half a dozen boards and all this artwork pinned to it. And we could hear Ted through the door He's really loud, you know, and he's just like, yeah, you know, laughing, whatever. And so we're just waiting our turn. All of a sudden we see the doorknob kind of go like this. And this little figure comes out from, you know, backing out of the door. And it's she turns around, it's Jane Fonda. And she's in her workout outfit. <laughs> she's got little like leg warmers on. And she's <laughs> stunned because she sees us. She's trying to sneak out for a jog or something to go yeah. work out. And she sees us and she's like, oh, and, and then she sees the artwork and um, she goes, oh, wow, this is really cool. Ted's going to like this. She goes, well, I'm off for my workout. And so Jane Fonda always, my sister sort of resembled her. And I thought, well, okay, if she likes this and I felt comfortable with her, I said, I just said, hey, well, if you like this so much, you got to stick around. You got to come into this meeting. She goes, no, no, Ted and I got in a fight last night. He doesn't want me in this meeting. And I, I said, come on, just come in. You got to be in. And she goes, all right, but I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to sit in the corner and not say a word. So then we get called in and Ted's sitting on this chair and they had breakfast was already finished. They were all the breakfast was on these carts and he's got a shirt. He's got like a white dress shirt on totally unbuttoned like half his chest is showing and he's got his <laughs> leg up on the corner like this and he's still talking and everything as we're bringing setting up all the boards and um so he starts seeing stuff and jane just literally sitting on the floor in the corner looking at this artwork but she's kind of in this pouty mode not talking to him 
And he sees this piece of artwork that I had done where this wolf couples all lovey-dovey, cold up. He goes, he goes, oh, Gene, this is going to be great. Look at that little couple right there, Gene. They look, they're in love just like us. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so she's, she's like, you know, kind of warming up to it and anything, everything. And so anyway, we did the pitch. And um, we at the end of that pitch, we had a little CG anime, even though this was going to be hand drawn. Mm-hmm. We had the great Steve Markowski on our team. And Steve was at the time on his own doing experimenting with computer animation at, at his home. And we had the sequence at the opening of the movie where this helicopter was going to come down and um, you tranquilize these wolves and get them out of Canada and bring them to, right. to Yellowstone. And it was a very dramatic scene with all these wolves and, and everything that Steve had done. And by the end of that thing, we literally had Ted in tears. He's like, I love this. We got to make this. When are we going to make it? And then what happened was, um, I won't get into all the details, but basically they had bamboozled Ted. They had no intention of making it. They had paid some outside writer to do this and he just got a payday and didn't finish it. And then we were, pretty much let go at, at after that and, and the aol uh, you know takeover merger uh, happened all that yeah. stuff happened yeah. yeah by the way little known fact uh ted turner is i think the largest landowner in the united states is that right yeah i mean no he kidding. owns hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres and he has buffalo herds and you wow. know he's he's got a chain of restaurants uh that serve buffalo Ted's. no kidding yeah ted's right is it great place we have one here is in it Nashville. Really called ted's, what, huh? what's it called it's just called ted's ted's mm-hmm. ted's That's yeah wild. yeah so yeah. anyway there you well, go Well, one of the coolest things we got to do on that was actually go to yellowstone and, and work with these guys who who actually you know were doing those programs and because yeah. of ted um since then the ecology there has has really improved you know yeah. in a huge way so he's had a great impact so Dan, you're out there, you're you're doing story supervision, you're directing projects. What what's next for you? Okay, so what you mean now or after that happened? Well, no, no, I'm just talking oh. about in general, oh, in general, you know. Yeah, we're starting to bump up against our time, oh, but I okay. I did want to just sort of say, you know, uh, we bring people on, we have them talk about their careers, but their careers aren't over. Their careers Absolutely. are, they're in the midst of their careers, you know, yeah, they're moving yeah. forward. They're doing other things. Are you, I, I know you worked on like pause of fury with Rob, uh, yeah. you know, you, you were doing story work, uh, yeah, pre-production was, character designs, things like that. Yeah. You know, I was, after all that, I was, you know, just incidentally, I was I was story supervisor on Finding Nemo and Toy Story 2. And right. I was hoping to direct it at, at Pixar. I almost was you know, sort of dangling the carrot to co-direct Finding Nemo. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. But uh, since then, I've just been kind of working in story mostly because, you know, that's that's kind of what's available. But it, it, I got to say, it's been a bumpy ride for a lot of us who who, you know, as we get older to try to get work, they want younger people, et cetera. And, but, you know, I've been able to survive. I, you know, people know who I am and yeah. I can do a lot of different things. I, so, are you sensing that though? Do you, do you really sense ageism? I see the ageism. I see 
you know, uh, some other things that are going on politically. Yeah. Yeah. The, the old, yeah. And you know, you're not, you're not the only one. I, I, you know, I've talked to other people in the business who, who are feeling the same way, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 the, what's frustrating is I feel like I'm at the top of my game right now. Yeah. You know? And, and it's like the only, the jobs that I get is because of people who know me from the past. So right. I work with Daryl Vin Sitters. Yeah. I work with this producer who I work with on Tomorrowland with Brad. Yeah. Bird. I, I direct this animated sequence for Tomorrowland that unfortunately the movie ran too long. And it didn't wind up in the movie, but it's on the Blu-ray. But in any event, that producer hired me for a Disney plus film yeah, yeah. recently. So, but I've been well, you, you, I, I, on Tomorrowland. You work with my buddy, Jeff Lynch. Yeah. Jeff, Jeff, yeah. Well, Jeff worked on it. Um, with Brad down here in LA. And yeah, yeah. It's actually still living up north. Okay. It was a little animated piece, but I did run into to Jeff. Yeah, yeah. After they shot the movie, I saw him up at Skywalker once. You know, I, I, I was best man at at both of Jeff's weddings. Oh no way! I was really? I was his best man for both his weddings. Wow, that's what that's I like to tell fantastic. people. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, let's hope this one's the Quincy. Right? No, no, yeah. The second one. The second one stuck. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, uh, there there's still plenty of people that we all know in the industry. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, it, 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 I I think with your provenance. And uh, and your degree of experience and talent, you, you shouldn't you shouldn't be having too much trouble. No, I mean currently I'm working on something that's actually pretty cool. Um, I I uh, I don't know if you know Ash Brandon, but I work with Ash on Toy Story two. And Ash, I know the name. Yeah, yeah. So Ash and I go way back from Pixar, and he he and a couple other people um, uh, they got this an hand drawn animated uh, feature off the ground. Um, they, they were able to finance it through NFTs and Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher are the producers of it. And they also do the voices for it's called stoner cats. It's an adult, uh, animated feature and Jane Fonda here. We bring her up again. She's doing the voice of this older woman who lives alone with her cats. Mm. She has early Alzheimer. Her name is Mrs. Stoner. And her cats look after her. So she needs the marijuana to help her with her Alzheimer's. Mm. But the cats get smarter from the pot smoke and they make sure she stays out of trouble. So if she gets behind the wheel and gets lost or something, they can help her navigate and, you know, look after. And, stuff. and that's in production. That's in production right now. Fantastic. Chris Rock is doing a voice on it. Seth MacFarlane. Um, oh, that's a know. great cast. Yeah, and I just did a thing with Michael Bublé. He's a he's a guest on one of the. Well, we're right now the NFT holders are seeing them as episodic shorts, but it's designed as a feature. And the idea is that I think they're trying to work out a deal with one of the streamers yeah. or the networks to help finish off the feature, and and then maybe do another feature or possibly a series. So awesome. that's what I'm working on at the moment. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I really like to do. I I still have a lot of movie ideas and things. Yeah. Well, up on my own, and I'd, I'd like to do. I like to make a film before I drop. Yeah, 
You know, it'd be nice. Well, I'm I'm sure that's going to happen uh, because you're a long, long way from dropping dead. Well, so. <laughs> well, I you know something I got to say, Dan. It, it's really been an absolute pleasure having you on the Skull Rock podcast and being able to just chat about your career and uh, and and all these different projects and and really kind of interesting how our paths have crossed quite a bit yeah, on some of these absolutely. projects, but. But, but we're in different areas of production, so we don't often, you know, run into one another. But but yeah. the other interesting thing is we have different stories. We're, we're looking at those projects from different vantage points. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I, I was eye-opening for me, too. I had no idea we had worked on some of these things together. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely very amazing. Cool. It really is. And uh, I'm very impressed with the books you put out, by the way. This thank you awesome. very much. Very cool. Check is in the mail, my friend. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Shameless plug. I know. <laughs> well, that, thank you. You know, I, again, I think with all of us, you know, that get into animation, our careers evolve and yeah. take us down different paths. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and I, I, you know, there's so many of us that were at Cal Arts and we were all kind of in the same place yeah. at Cal Arts. And, and, and it, I find it really interesting and fascinating to see how people have evolved and gone down different avenues, you know, directing story, you know, yeah. and everybody started out sort of in anim, you know, as animators, yeah. you know, and, and kind of gravitated into different directions. Yeah. Uh, I also think what's, what's cool is that even though at least my time at Disney was relatively short compared to some of my other friends and probably yourself, I don't know how long you were, you seem like you were there. For yeah. I was, I was there for 32 plus years. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, so. but what's cool about it is that, that that time frame of yeah. mermaid and you know that whole renaissance i run into people from that time and it's like that was a magic time everybody is like looks fondly back on that you know yeah yeah kind of a touchstone for all of us i think well you know something i think we were all in the right place at the right time and it yeah. was a uh it, it was sort of the beginning of that renaissance and we were we were part of that renaissance of disney animation yeah, and, 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 you know, animation goes through cycles, studios go through cycles, ups and downs and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, but I have to say that particular period is a standout because you had the golden age of Disney animation back in the thirties and forties. Now you have that Renaissance period that everybody's looking at, which is sort of the late eighties, uh, you know, through the nineties, yeah. uh, where we, we all worked on so many incredible pictures that added yeah. to the, the, the animation history timeline, you know, well, that was the dream, you know, it was very precarious going into it. But then, you know, I remember talking with a lot of my peers, I'm sure the guys that you were close with in school yeah. and at work talking the same way we wanted animation to like, not only thrive, but maybe be more accepted to more adult audiences where mm -hmm. people take their dates to them or whatever. And that's precisely what happened. You know? We so accomplished that. I mean, yeah. all of us, yeah. you know, as, as a, as a collective team of animation professionals, yeah. that that's exactly what happened with films like the little mermaid and beauty and the beast and Aladdin mm -hmm. and the lion King. Yeah. And so know? adults weren't afraid to go and see a cartoon. They could have a good time as well and not feel embarrassed about it or whatever. Yeah, they weren't looked at as perverts going into to see an animated film. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. I just meant like 
I did. <laughs> I just felt like they secretly like to be entertained by cartoons like Kitty Fair, you know? Yeah, yeah. But. No, I, I totally got it. <laughs> All right. Hey, Dan, it was so great having you on the Skull Rock podcast. I, hey. I, I look forward to seeing you again and, and yeah, look likewise. forward to hopefully uh, seeing Stoner Cat soon. Yeah, yeah. I, I when when I hear more about when it's going to launch, I'll I'll let you know. Yeah, let me and, know. And thank you guys both for having me on. It was really fun. So I hope we can we can uh, do it again, or I'll see you soon out there in the animation world. Absolutely. Thanks, Dan. All right. Thanks, guys. Your attention, please. <laughs> now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. Wow, what a resume. What a great talent. Dan Jupe. Yeah, no, he he's actually really a fantastic uh, artist, a really terrific person. You know, I, I, I got to tell you, Al John, I always felt with Dan, from his talent standpoint, he was kind of like a Fred Moore, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's like, you know, Dan, Dan can draw up a storm and was, I think has done a lot of terrific animation. He's storyboard artist, director. I mean, just a, all a really well-rounded animation professional and really terrific person. Absolutely. Well, looking forward to seeing more from uh, Dan and his brand new series. Uh, you got to check that out when it comes out uh, or it's already out stoner cats. So we'll be able to check that out there uh, streaming in a service near you. So uh, awesome. Check that out. Anyway, Dave, it's been an awesome show. And I'd like to remind everybody, if you like the show, please, please consider subscribing. We do appreciate it. Every little bit helps the algorithm, if you will. And you can always give us a like, follow on our social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Be sure to check out the vault of shows at skullrockpodcast.com. You can get all the vault shows there with all the uh, behind the scenes of your favorite Disney films and attractions and pop culture and so much more. You can also send us those show uh, feedback and those notes, those questions, if you will. Dave at skullrockpodcast.com or Aljon at skullrockpodcast.com and, uh, just giving a shout out to uh, my other podcast, the Dining at Disney podcast. So please check that out. All right. And Dave, you got the final word. Well, Al John, as always, uh, our listeners can go to davidbosser.com, check out some of uh, the articles I have up on uh, my website. And you can also go to the oldmillpress.com if you're interested in any of the books I've written, along with books by other authors like Don Ballard or Matt Mason. Uh, and uh, with that, uh, go out, have a fantastic week, and we'll see you right here next Monday on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List Podcast, as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves well i can do all of the legwork for them i have expertise i've been to the disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney 
cruise, Disney park trip, adventures by Disney. They can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com.